Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 44. Some Things Never Change. The wars of the Diadochi were over. The Greeks in Macedonia and Greece had no enemies left. So what did they do? Did they enjoy many years of peace and prosperity? Did they use these years to grow stronger and wealthier? No, of course not. As usual, the lessons of the past were not learned. Without any foreign enemies to fight, the Greeks fought amongst themselves until it was too late. It seems that some things just never change. The wars of the Diadochi had resulted in the founding of three new dynasties which controlled the three main parts of Alexander the Great's empire. Macedonia and Greece, Asia and Egypt. In this chapter, we will follow the fortunes of the Antigonids, the rulers of Macedon, as they struggled through nearly 60 years between 277 BC and the accession of Philip V. Antigonus Gonatus has come to be seen as a very average ruler. This may not be entirely fair on him, as he was leading Macedon in very difficult times. The fact that he reigned for a long time, and there was still a kingdom to pass on to his successors when he died, suggests he must have done something right. Most of his reign was spent fighting against other Greeks. The first enemy Antigonus had to deal with was King Pyrrhus of Epirus. He had fought with Lysimachus over the throne of Greece a few years earlier and lost. He had managed to hold on to his own throne and sat back for a while waiting. When the Antigonids finally took hold of Macedon, Pyrrhus decided it was time for another go. Before we deal with the struggle against Antigonus though, we need to learn a little bit about King Pyrrhus and his struggles in the west. Over in the Italian peninsula, a new power was rising. The city of Rome had grown from a small backward city into quite a powerful state. As we know, most of the south of Italy was Greek. Many cities had been founded hundreds of years before as colonies of Athens, Corinth and the other ancient Greek cities. The region was known as Magna Graecia. In 281 BC, one of these cities, Taranto, was under threat from the armies of Rome. The citizens of the city asked Pyrrhus of Epirus to come and lead their forces against Rome. Pyrrhus, armed with 3,000 cavalry, 20,000 infantry and a few war elephants, marched into Italy and inflicted a defeat on the Romans. A couple of years later, he did it again. He was invited to become king of Sicily and there fought against the other rising power of the time, Carthage. After a while, he became less popular and was forced to retreat. As he was leaving, he turned to one of his commanders and said, What a battleground we are leaving for the Romans and the Carthaginians. Pyrrhus was right. Not too many years later, the two great powers would begin what are known as the Punic Wars. The Romans would learn from their defeats to Pyrrhus. But that's for a later chapter. Pyrrhus travelled back from Italy to Epirus, a very worried man. He had 8,000 infantrymen and 5,000 cavalry with him. It was a very good thing they were alive, but there was one tiny little problem. They hadn't been paid, and Pyrrhus had no money. The king came up with the only solution he could think of. He needed to start another war and hoped to grab some treasure. He grabbed a few Gauls to add to his army, and just like that, invaded Macedon with plunder on his mind. The war went much better than even Pyrrhus had expected. He took a few towns and then picked up 2,000 deserters. Pyrrhus, confidence now sky-high, went in search of Antigonus. He found the Macedonian king and his army in a narrow pass and attacked, causing chaos and panic. Antigonus's Macedonian troops retreated. The Macedonians ran away 
and Pyrrhus captured more Gallic mercenaries and a load of elephants. Pyrrhus chased after the rest of Antigonus's army. Morale among the Macedonians was at an all-time low, and they refused to fight. Clever Pyrrhus called out to the Macedonian officers by name, and persuaded the whole body of infantry to desert. Antigonus managed to escape by pretending to be somebody else. Pyrrhus now took control of Upper Macedonia and Thessaly. Antigonus managed to hold on to the towns on the coast. Unfortunately for Pyrrhus, his Gallic mercenaries went on the rampage in the city of Aegea. They went searching for gold and dug up the tombs of the old kings, scattering the bones while they scavenged for treasure. This made the Macedonians very angry. Pyrrhus didn't bother to stop the looting, and he also didn't bother to chase Antigonus further, kill him and take the coastal towns. Instead, Pyrrhus marched into the Peloponnese and tried to take Sparta. Of course he failed, and he turned his attention to the second most important city on the peninsula. Argus was being fought over by two men. Pyrrhus marched over to that city instead, invited one of the rivals and prepared to take it. Antigonus, though, had found out what was going on and he marched to Argus too. The two armies set up camp and there was an amusing exchange of messages. Pyrrhus sent a herald to Antigonus. You are a coward, said the message. Come down onto the plain and fight. Antigonus sent the herald back with his own message. I will choose my own time to fight, came the reply. And if you are tired of life, I can think of many ways for you to die. The city of Argus then sent both men messages, begging them to go and fight somewhere else and not use their city as a battleground. Both kings agreed. One of them showed he was being truthful by offering his son as a hostage. The other showed he was a liar by waiting until dark and then storming the city in the dead of night. In this case, treachery did not pay. Pyrrhus, who had stormed the city, found himself in a bad spot. Antigonus heard that he had attacked the city and sent a strong force inside to help the Argives. At the same time, Arius, king of Sparta, arrived with a force of 1,000. These forces attacked Pyrrhus's Gauls in the marketplace. Pyrrhus advanced into the city with his own troops to help the Gauls, but the city was unfamiliar to them and they got lost in the narrow streets. When the sun rose, Pyrrhus had a shock. The combined forces of the enemy were far too strong. He ordered a retreat but realised the gates were too narrow for everyone to get out of Argus easily. Pyrrhus always had a plan B up his sleeve, though. He sent a message to his son, Helenus, who was outside with the rest of the army, telling him to smash part of the city wall so that his men could get out more easily. The messenger, though, must have had a bit of brain failure because he didn't give the correct instructions. Helenus completely misunderstood what was required and instead took the rest of the elephants and some hand-picked troops and advanced into the city to help his father. Pyrrhus's situation was now hopeless. Some of his troops were desperately trying to get out of the city, and many others were trying to get in. This was made worse by the fact that there were a load of war elephants trying to move through the narrow spaces. The largest one had fallen across the gateway and was blocking the way, while another was trying to find its rider. This poor elephant crushed a whole load of men on both sides and then found its dead master. It picked up the poor man, placed him on his tusks and went on the rampage. The city's population added to the chaos by throwing things at Pyrrhus and his men. The king of Epirus was hit by a tile thrown by an old woman. He fell to the ground and was finished off by one of Antigonus's soldiers. The war caused by King Pyrrhus, which Antigonus so nearly lost, 
actually worked out very well for the Macedonian king. He completely regained control of Greece and Macedon, and he even had new grateful allies in Argos, and amazingly in Sparta. All was quiet for a few years after the victory. Antigonus allowed the Greek cities some independence, although he took care to make sure there was a garrison of troops in each of them. He developed close relations with the Seleucids, and the Seleucid king, Seleucus's son Antiochus, married Antigonus's sister. Whenever there are three great powers, and two of them are very close, the third one gets nervous. Over in Egypt, Ptolemy II decided he needed to stir up a bit of trouble, and he encouraged Athens and Sparta to rise up against Antigonus. Small wars continued between the three powers until 251 BC, when a truce was signed. Nothing much changed, except that Ptolemy gave the city of Miletus and a few other bits of territory to the Seleucids. As has been the case throughout most of our tale of the history of ancient Greece, it was not a foreign enemy that caused Antigonus most trouble. The Greek cities, tired of being ruled by a Macedonian king, started to get restless. It would only take one clever and cunning leader to cause a big rebellion. That leader was found in the city of Sicyon. Aratus of Sicyon had been born in the city in 271 BC. In 251 he was only 20 years old, but he took it upon himself to organise a rebellion against the Macedonian masters of Greece. He took control of Sicyon, kicking out the dictator of the time who was a friend of Macedon. He invited all of the exiles back to the city, and then asked if Sicyon could become part of the Achaean League. The Achaean League was a small group of cities in the Peloponnese who had joined together in 280 BC. It wasn't particularly strong or important. All that changed when Sicyon became a member and Aratus became its leader. Antigonus Gonatus was not one to fight a war when he could get what he wanted in a different way. He sent gifts of money to Aratus, trying to persuade him to join with the Macedonians. Aratus just gave the money away to the citizens of the city. He then travelled to Egypt to speak with his friend, Ptolemy II. Ptolemy also gave him money, which Aratus used to strengthen Sicyon. Here, clearly, was an unusual man. He was far more interested in the freedom and happiness of his city than he was in getting rich. Antigonus turned up the charm even further. He was fighting a war by being nice, and he knew how to use the weapons of friendship. He sacrificed to the gods and sent meat to Aratus. He praised him as a lover of liberty and a man of great wisdom. None of it worked. In 245 BC, Aratus was elected as Strategos of the Achaean League. This meant he was the overall leader of the military forces. He decided that this was his chance to free the Greeks from Macedonian control. In 243 BC, he came up with a brave and sneaky plan. Aratus knew a Syrian man called Erginus. The man was a thief and had managed to steal from the Corinthian treasury. He came to Sicyon to store his new fortune. There he met Aratus. While chatting, he informed the Sicyon leader that his brother was in the Macedonian garrison in Corinth. Better than this, he knew of a secret path leading to part of the walls of the city, which could easily be climbed. Aratus offered to pay him sixty talents if he would show him the way in. Erginus agreed, and Aratus sold his wife's jewellery to raise the money. Aratus of Sicyon led four hundred men to Corinth, leading the best and strongest hundred of them personally. They crept up the secret path and found their way right into the garrison. The Macedonians were caught by surprise. The next morning, 
Corinth's garrison surrendered and the whole army of the Achaean League arrived. Aratus was enthusiastically welcomed in Corinth. The Macedonian garrison was replaced by one from the Achaean League. After Corinth joined the League, Megara, Trozen and other cities also rebelled against Macedon. The Achaean League was becoming a real thorn in the side of the Macedonian king. Antigonus Gonatus did not have to suffer the thorn for too long. In 239 BC he died, aged about 80. He'd been on the throne of the Kingdom of Macedon for nearly 40 years. It could never be claimed he was a great leader, but he managed to hold his kingdom together for most of his reign. It had been a hard struggle, and he'd kept it up for a long, long time. His son inherited the kingdom and became King Demetrius II. There is not much written down or known about Demetrius II. He had to deal with the Achaean League and another alliance of Greek cities called the Aetolian League. He put down a rebellion in Boeotia, regaining the territory for Macedon. Athens and the Peloponnese, though, became freer and less under Macedonian control than they had been before. Another league was formed around Epirus. In 229 BC, barbarians from the area we now know as Kosovo attacked. Demetrius led an army against these people, known as the Dardanians, and in 229 was killed in the fighting. The heir to the throne was his nine-year-old son, Philip. The child became King Philip V of Macedon. But Philip V was only nine years old. The situation was far too serious for a nine-year-old to be in charge, even with the regent, so the Macedonians turned to Demetrius, his half-brother. After ruling as regent for a while and defeating the Dardanians, he was offered the kingship. He became Antigonus III, Doson. He proved himself to be a shrewd and sensible leader. By 226 BC, he had defeated the local barbarians and had some time to deal with the Achaean League. But in the end, he didn't really have to. Aratus had been elected as Strategos every other year and had expanded the Achaean League. Many more cities joined and it reached the height of its power in 229. Most of the Peloponnese and many other cities had joined and it looked as if it was in a great position to really challenge Macedon. All that ended, though, when a new king came to the throne in Sparta. Cleomenes III had actually come to power in 235. He spent the first years of his reign watching as Aratus attacked and allied with nearby cities. By 229 he was ready to fight back. He persuaded the cities of Tegea, Mantinea, Caffe and Orchomenus to ally instead with Sparta and leave the Achaean League. Cleomenes knew that his Spartan hoplites were still among the best trained and strongest in Greece. They may not have been a match for the Macedonians, but there was no threat from the Macedonians. Cleomenes thought his army was definitely a match for the Achaean League. As it turned out, he was absolutely right. He started by taking a fort near to the city of Megalopolis. Aratus declared war on Sparta and then tried to take Tegea and Orchomenus. The attacks were a complete failure and Cleomenes began to attack the Achaean League and defeat it on a regular basis. While doing this, he also had many of the ruling ephors in Sparta killed and imposed his own rule on the city. He gave his land and that of his family back to the people and allowed some non-Spartans to become citizens. He also reformed the army and equipped them with the Macedonian Sarissa. By 224 BC, Sparta had taken many of the cities of the Achaean League. Aratus was desperate. He was so desperate that the only place he could think of to turn to for help was the one the League had originally been formed to oppose. Aratus contacted Antigonus Doson. 
the Macedonian king marched down to the Peloponnese. He and Aratus declared everlasting friendship. Aratus was a bit scared of Antigonus, and thought the king might turn on him, but Antigonus was made of better stuff than that. He actually admired Aratus and treated him with great honour. Aratus quickly realised that Antigonus was a good and honest man, and the two came to trust each other. The armies joined together and marched to confront Cleomenes. On the way, Antigonus revived the Hellenic League of Philip II. He called it the League of Leagues, and most of the Greek city-states joined. Antigonus was ready. The two forces met at the Battle of Silesia. Cleomenes sacked the city of Megalopolis. He then raided the territory of the city of Argus. Antigonus marched on, and soon the armies were ready for battle. Cleomenes had 20,000 infantrymen, composed of Spartan hoplites and allies, and also about 650 cavalry. Antigonus arrived on the scene with around 30,000 men, including the allied forces of the Achaean League. Despite the Spartans being well-trained and powerful, they could still not match a true Macedonian force. Cleomenes was badly beaten. According to the historian Plutarch, out of 6,000 Spartans, only 200 survived. Cleomenes fled to Alexandria, where he was taken in by Ptolemy II. He only lasted a couple more years. When Ptolemy II died, his son, Ptolemy III, treated Cleomenes badly. In 219, he tried to revolt. The revolt failed, and Cleomenes killed himself so he wouldn't be captured. Antigonus Doson had regained much of the old Macedonian kingdom. He didn't have time to enjoy it, as he had to rush back north to defeat some Illyrian invaders. During the battle, which the Macedonians won, he became ill and died a little while later. It was 221 BC. The kingdom reverted to Philip V, who was, by now, 17. We will follow the exploits of King Philip V of Macedon in chapter 47. In the next chapter, we will find out some more about those learned Greeks whose thoughts and discoveries we still use today. So, until next time, have a great week and I'll speak to you then.